Welcome to Street Smart Success, where real estate entrepreneurs share their backgrounds, experience, and lessons learned. This is Roger Becker, your host. Learn with me as I drill down with guests about their paths to success and what they're doing now. have with us a very interesting guy. You know, we've been talking and talking and we could probably talk between the two of us, I think for another 10 hours before we hit record. Sometimes that happens. Uh, But as far as business goes, the guy is a a giant in the uh, lending space, in the non-performing loan space. I may be corrected further in this conversation, but that's what I believe this guy does. He's an animal though. I mean, it's, he's big, man. He's a big player. And I'm like, whenever that, whenever somebody comes on the show, I'm always like, I'm humbled and excited. He is the founder and CEO of First Lean Capital. He is Bill Bimel. Bill, thanks so much for joining me on Street Smart Success. Roger, it's a pleasure to be with you today. Yeah, boy, oh boy, what a great conversation we're having. I never know what people are going to be like. <laughs> you know, I never, I never expect a warm, fuzzy guy and inevitably, you know, that's, that's my take on yeah. you. You're a business guy. So I, I know there's that there's some steel in there for sure. Bill, you know, I know the answer to this question already because you and I have been talking about it, but for the audience's sake, give me the Bill Bimel backstory pre-real estate. And I mean, for example, you, you, you went to NYU film school. How many people can say that? I know you played varsity baseball as a kid. You, you're a polymath, Bill. Give me the background of Bill Bimel. Well, I can't believe varsity baseball actually still shows up in my bio there. That's great. Um, you know, I, I do try to be a, a diverse human being. And um, I'm also one of those folks that, you know, thinks that you should kind of reinvent yourself every five to 10 years, or maybe that's just a philosophy I've, I've picked up on, uh, you know, by, by stumbling and going in different directions. Um, now, obviously, I've been in the career of real estate investing in, in mortgage finance for well into two, over two decades. But I started my my whole. I grew up in in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, uh, with dreams of becoming a Hollywood filmmaker. Uh, and I um, went to NYU in the early '90s. I actually had a little success, believe it or not. I gave up on acting pretty young, but I I got into film producing and writing in college. I was um, very much a producing type of person, uh, very goal oriented leading, loved leading groups, loved working all hours. And uh, I had some success of the five directors that I broke out of NYU film school for went on to major careers in Hollywood. One of them is an Emmy winning award, award winning director. Now uh, of my senior thesis film at NYU should, everyone should still watch it. It's great. It's on, you can find it on the internet. It's called Atomic Tabasco. It's this 14 minute short film that we did uh, in the Lower East Side of New York back in the late 90s. Um, it, it propelled, a, it won the NYU Film Festival, got us an award at Sundance and the Student Academy and propelled us into Hollywood. Uh, we did a, a, an independent film in 99 with New Line Cinema. Uh, we were these young 20-somethings that got propelled into Hollywood. And um, we did this cu- uh, cute little movie called Highway, which is out on Netflix now. It's stars a guy named Jared Leto, 
and Jake oh, Gyllenhaal. Wow. These guys were kind of young, budding actors at the time. Uh, the movie ended up never getting released by the studio. It went straight to video. It was a political thing. The, the head of the studio got fired. It was, we kind of got, you know, ixnayed with a group of films that never got released. And it's still, it's actually somewhat of a cult classic today. So I came out to Hollywood in the late 90s, early 2000s and thought I was going to be a, a film producer. And like most middle 20s somethings, I was very idealistic and I got burned out by Hollywood within a few years. I just, you know, I was, this was not what I was interested in. Uh, I think before we came on here, you and I talked, I loved your saying that, you know, in New York, people would st stab you in the chest, but in LA, they would stab you in the back. <laughs> and that's kind of the experience that I had in the early 2000s uh, working in Hollywood. Um, it was wonderful. I was hanging with the movie stars, et cetera. But I, um, I yearned for the East Coast. So in 2002, I, had, I went back to the East Coast thinking I was moving back to New York, to my apartment in New York. I stopped in Florida, Fort Lauderdale, where I grew up to see my parents uh, for what I thought would be the summer of 2002. That summer, I met my wife. Uh, I got my father convinced me to get into real estate and the rest is history. I went off to build a, a real estate career instead of filmmaking. Was your dad in real estate? He was. My dad was a broker. It's interesting. Dad was a real estate broker for developers in South Florida. And most of the developers in South Florida were targeting Northeast customers. My dad was a great broker. I learned the business from him. I fell in love with real estate. You know, I would go to the, go watch him sell real estate, but I never wanted to be a real estate broker. That was like never even in my cards. However, when I moved back to Florida, he's like, listen, get your license, come work with me, learn the business. And I said, dad, I'll do it but we got to practice what you preach. We need to buy, not just broker. And so from day one, getting into real estate, uh, I did get my real estate license. I'm still an active broker in the state of Florida for over 20 years. Uh, I rarely sell real estate, but I, I, I did build a real estate brokerage for a number of years in the early 2000s. And I started invest investing in single family homes as a fi fix and flip investor. I, um, within, by 2005, I moved in, into commercial real estate, another family friend of ours who, uh, Nate Werner, who had been, you know, in the business of tenant rep and, and, and retail and restaurant development in South Florida for a number of years at that point said to me, would you like to get into the old boys club known as commercial real estate? So I spent another couple of years doing commercial deals. I'm still a, a partner in a boutique commercial brokerage in Florida that does tenant rep for Darden restaurants, um, BJ's restaurants, uh, Taco Bell. You know, the, we go out and we, we scout the sites, find the sites, negotiate the deals, help developers develop them, et cetera. Um, but in 2008, the summer of 2008, while I was doing all of that, I got a call from a fund manager in Southern California, where I live today, by the way. Uh, and this fund manager, this was three months. I remember this, like, I'll never forget this phone call. I wrote about it in my book. Uh, this guy, I, a random number from Southern California. He says, listen, I, I manage this fund and we're buying mortgages and we can name our price. Uh, we just don't know what the real estate's worth. And this was when the market at the time was kind of, stalled or 
you know, a falling, dropping knife. That was my light bulb moment. I got into managing distress portfolios for this fund. Within two years, I was no longer a real estate investor. I was a note investor buying these defaulted mortgages. Went to work with a New York firm in 2011, spent 10 years uh, buying a lot, a lot of mortgages all over the country. And, you know, developing an entire paradigm about how to work them out with people such that distressed borrowers that are in foreclosure situations can either walk away with dignity, maybe maintain their homes with modifications. We really did have a, a huge impact on the distressed business these last this last 15 years. And that's kind of where I am today, still sitting there waiting for the distress to come back. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm not so sure you have to, well, it's an, it's a weird time right now because there's, and you know, so many people are at, you know, 3% mortgages and, uh, right. and then the lending standards got tighter certainly than they were back in, you know, oh, you know, pre-08. Right. Just a detail to step, take a step back and start curiosity. So you were like mid 2000s doing single family homes. Were you just flipping them or were you keeping them or was it both? And then when you got into commercial at that time, what did that look like? What's, what kind of stuff were you buying? Yeah. Um, the, the, I did some keeping of rental properties. So on the rental, on the, on the stuff I would keep, is anything that would be a double digit net cash on cash return. And the stuff I would flip would be, you know, hey, if I can go out and make 50,000 on a property, you know, um, but I could, whereas I, you know, in, in six months of repairing, 30 to 50 grand on a net uh, basis, buying, repairing and flipping a property, I would, I would do that. And so I ended up in those early 2000s from say 2002 to 2006, I was averaging about one flip per month. And then I would acquire, you know, one or two per quarter that I would keep and build a rental portfolio. Um, the one thing that I also did, so my volume of, of what I could say I sold as an investor was much larger because I also ran a wholesale uh, operation as well. So um, there's, uh, and uh, this is obviously now a known business and where you see a lot of people getting into the business that don't have a lot of cash. They start with, you know, trying to wholesale deals, um, but we were very effective at it. There was the South Florida is one of, has always notoriously been one of the great real estate speculator markets. A lot of, you know, retirees will go live in South Florida and they'll, they'll everyone flips houses. As a matter of fact, I'll tell you, everyone's in real estate. I know. In and I've got a story to prove it here for you. My father once got pulled over by a uh, state trooper on I-95 and the State trooper pull, pulls him over side of the road, sir. You know, officer, what do I do? He said, "Sir, can you please show me your real estate license and registration, please?" <laughs> my dad is like, "Sir, how do you even know I'm a real estate broker? I, you didn't give me my driver's license." The broker, the troopers, you know, puts his head in the window. He goes, "Sir, 
not everyone in Florida has a driver's license. <laughs> <laughs> I, obviously, that's a joke. I get, I, I get it. No, I look, I, I went to overnight camp as a kid with a bunch of people from Florida, by the way, South Florida. And one of them, as it turns out, was like the founder. I don't know about the founder, but I think the founder of Lennar, but that's a complete aside. Yep. Anyway. Um, and then, and then how about on the commercial side? Yeah. So on the commercial side of the business, uh, I got in representing, I had really great tenants walking in the door. My partner had represented Darden restaurants exclusively in South Florida for at the time, what was 25 years. He's now going over 40 years of exclusive representation of Darden. And um, so we were in Darden, for those that don't know, started as Red Lobster. He did the first Red Lobster in Florida 45 years ago or something like that. And then it became Olive Garden. General Mills Corporation owned them for a while. About the commercial, you know, that's what you did in single family houses. What was the commercial uh, part that you yeah. uh, migrated to? Yeah, I was fortunate enough to partner with someone who had years of representing national respected tenants in the retail and restaurant business. You know, Darden, a client of ours for over 40 years, um, that started as Red Lobster and then Olive Garden, Seasons 52. They own Capitol Grill, Longhorn Yard House, uh, Eddie V's Concepts. Uh, you know, they're the largest casual dining operator. And, and so being that we were where the developers would come to us wanting to do deals with our restaurant client. We have other clients that we'd work with, McDonald's, Taco Bell, fast food, et cetera. So on the commercial side, there were two ways in which I would get involved as an investor. One, if I had an opportunity to put a deal together with one of our tenants, and I could then invest in that deal with the developer, if that developer, for instance, was building a single tenant freestanding Olive Garden somewhere, I could actually sometimes participate as an LP in those developments um, or even giving back my commission as equity in the deal as well. Um, but where my real, my real home runs came from was just uh, I, I had all started to get into the distress space on the resi side and the doors that got opened to me by these fund managers in California and New York all of a sudden I started to have deals coming to me on the commercial side. So for instance, I bought a Wells Fargo bank out of the Lehman Brothers Trust, uh, uh, Wells Fargo on Okeechobee Boulevard, Maine and Maine in West Palm Beach. And, you know, nobody really wanted this deal because Wells Fargo was paying $6 a foot net rent with a, you know, 10 years left on their, in their contract. And, and I was able to buy that. And, you know, so deals where I could buy them on the cheap single tenant or small strip centers or, you know, like maybe a, a multifamily 10 unit building. That's, I, that's where I dipped my toe more on the commercial side of the business. Um, always had it that I would get involved in commercial, larger commercial deals. And it's interesting, commercial after the GFC was, a, was the animal that kind of, you know, scooted along and was able to with the cost of money declining after the last crisis from there for a long runway, uh, commercial kind of was able to kick the can down the road long enough that there wasn't nearly as much distress in commercial as there was on the residential side last go around. I think what we're 
tuning up for uh, in the days, months, years ahead is exactly the opposite, more of a return to something similar to the savings and loan era crisis uh, or, you know, where commercial properties are going to be the leading way for the coming distress. Mm-hmm. Uh, on, on that Wells Fargo, and you just used that as one example, that wasn't a, a distressed that what was that a distressed situation? Yeah, well, you wouldn't think it would be to have Wells Fargo as a tenant. I thought it was a great deal. <laughs> right. It looked it felt it it was it was a it was a sale of Lehman Brothers liquidated assets. So it was an auction and it kind of slipped under the radar. You know, I bought this, you know, I, I bought that building for less than a million bucks and sold it three years later for triple, you know? So there was definitely a distressed pricing. The, the man, the, the, I didn't, I mean, there was, there was hair on the deal, you know, not a lot of people, you know, you had to be able to be, to be willing to look beyond, you know, this low rent that Wells was paying on a portion of the building. Okay. So, so, so it was low rent and that's why you, and you were okay. And that's what you were able to be opportunistic about. Okay. Correct. So, so there was intrinsic value that you were, you were buying in that particular example. Okay. That's right. All right. So on the, and thank you so much for uh, going through all this experience. I find it to be fascinating. What is it about the uh, mortgage business that I guess gets you excited that was kind of, you were a moth, feels like you were somewhat of a moth to a flame about what are the intrinsics? Um, high barrier to entry, first and foremost. What I like about, I'm not a mortgage originator. So I'm a, I'm a buyer of seasoned whole loan mortgages and first lien position, meaning somebody else has to have the license to go out and originate and make the loan. I'm buying the loan at a discount most of the time to its face value. And whether it's performing or non-performing. And what I love about it is that you're not a landlord that gets calls about toilets in the middle of the night. uh, And you're not having to worry about the property upkeep. It's a financial play. And at the time of the GFC in 2008, when you looked at the fact that a good portion of residential homes were underwater, then in essence, by owning the first lien mortgage back then, you really controlled the asset because that owner being underwater had to come to us as the owner of their debt in first lien position to either short sell the property, deedaloo the property. So I felt like this was a really interesting way to control real estate, be involved in real estate, get cash off of real estate, without the operational concerns of managing ongoing real estate. And then that combined with the high barrier to entry, it's a good old boys network they call the secondary mortgage market. And it was, and it's not nearly as much of a good old boys network now. The GFC did a great job of bringing secondary loan trading to the masses You know, people can go out and buy individual mortgages on websites now using their IRA or or investing through a crowdfunding website. And there's folks out there training people how to get into this business. But it's still a very cash intensive business. And a lot of loans, pools of loans, they trade hands constantly. And the secondary market is very much based on what, you know, the, the the ability to play in that market if you have liquidity, if you have the cash and the connections 
it's a high barrier to entry and very few players in the business. So when the opportunities come along, the opportunities are huge as a result. And that's what really attracted me to it to begin with. Few players, how many? Well, it's getting smaller every day, believe it or not, because uh, I've seen, we've seen consolidation even within this business. But I would say there are about five or six major funds in the business. And these are, I can name the big boys, you know, some of them you'll know because they're in the front page news. People like Predium, they own Celine Finance. Goldman Sachs is one of the largest players in the business. There's another woman, uh, Vivian Wong, who, who VWH, who is uh, got millions and millions of dollars, billions of dollars in the space. Uh, a lot of it foreign money from Asia uh, combined with LPs here. Um, you've got some larger other entities that have come and gone. Bayview was in the space. Now they're out. You have groups like Carrington Mortgage, who were backed by Rocktop, Ellington. Um, you know, large funds have have come and gone. So there's about five, right now actively in the residential mortgage space. Uh, there's probably five or six big players. There's another 10 or so that are this mid-level where I would fit into. These are guys that are are managing anywhere from a hundred million to to two billion of 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 assets under management, uh, and then you've got dozens of small operators, the sub hundred million dollar operators, people that have portfolios ranging from a million or a couple million bucks up to fifty, sixty million dollars. And so, even within and when you think about the world of mortgages. You know, the residential mortgage space is a $12 trillion space. And so, especially in the distressed spot space, I look at it as what, how can we get market share right inside of here? Well, if it's a $12 trillion space, and right now we're looking at some of the lowest default rates in residential real estate in history, sub 3%. So that still means that there's $350 billion of distressed paper right now in a no stress environment. And every time is if, if people start losing their jobs or the cost of living continues to go up or interest rates reset on people and they no longer can afford, we're going to start to see an upward tick in defaults. It may not be big on Resi because Resi's got a runway and a lot of equity in it, but a 1% addition to the default market in residential is 120 billion with a B of new product that the banks and the special servicers are going to have to deal with just from a 1% move in defaults. So, you know, as us guys that are looking to spend a hundred million, 200 million, 500 million, it's a, that we can take that market share and, and, and being one of only a couple of players in the business, uh, it, you know, it's, it's a nice area to be in. Now on the red, on the commercial side, there's a ton of money sitting on the sidelines waiting to go after this test product. And I think we're going to see a lot more coming back to, we're already starting to see folks talking about where can we take advantage of the coming stress. Uh, you saw a huge buildup of money when COVID first hit, thinking that that would be when, you know, like the, the catalyst, the black swan event for a, a distress period, obviously the CARES Act and printing three to six, you know, billion, trillion, trillion? How much do we print? Yeah, it was, it was, it was, <laughs> a t, it was trillions. Yeah, it was. <laughs> it's not a, what's the one after trillion? What's uh, after that? We're going to have zil a zillion. I don't know. I think it's a zillion. I think. 
we're not there I yet. I remember when, uh, when the, uh, when it, I think was it during Reagan that we first crossed the trillion mark on the national debt? And they're like, this will never sustain, right? Back then, that was like 40 years ago when we were kids. And I remember my economics teacher saying, this is the worst thing. I mean, now we're like, what, 30 times that or something? Yes, we it's, are. It's crazy. Yeah. Hey, so um, I, I could go on forever about that, but I'll let you ask another question. Well, you know what's cool is so so what I'm hearing is it's 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 in the bottom line is huge market and relative to the size of the market, there's few players relative to the size of the market, and, and that that's what I'm hearing. So that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. And like you said, and because there's a barrier, high barrier to entry, because it's it's so because you need a lot of money. So that's even a simple guy like me can try to understand something like that. That's correct. Um, just out of curiosity, I know you're in residential. You said that the, you think that on the commercial side, there's going to be distress, which I mean, office might be the obvious, but I mean, what, what are going to be the, you think the larger, larger categories that kind of fall the hardest in the first? Um, well, I think that, that um, industrial, while it continues to go up, I think, has seen its day. The issue being, I think uh, Amazon came out a few months ago saying that they are going to divest of something like 30 million square feet. I mean, they had, they way over compensated for their buildup of demand at post COVID. And they are now going to start to reduce size. And they're really the largest player in the industrial space. So they're the bellwether. Keep an eye on that. I think there's industrial still safe long-term, but if you bought in the last few years at these higher valuations, you might get caught. Um, office is a no-brainer. It's an issue. More so in the downtown metros, obviously, than the, the city suburbs. And, oh, you know, I have people boots on the ground in all of these major metros around this country. Um, one, of my, one of my brokers in Chicago is a regular trustee of the bankruptcy courts uh, and of the, uh, and has, and he gets two calls a week to take over properties inside the loop. Uh, so it is, there are, there's all, we've already seen Brookfield hand over, you know, huge downtown LA office buildings. We saw the deal in your neck of the woods with when Apple bought that building that they got like brand new building for, you know, 40 cents on the dollar. So we're already seeing that right down in commercial. Um, the, and the multifamilies, you know, the multifamily is a problem. It's a, you know, as much as there, we are still net, net below demand, you know, there's obviously way more demand than supply for housing in this country. And there's a need for it. Uh, there are too many multifamily operators went out building too much product. Some of which is still hasn't even come online yet. And they did so at high valuations, ridiculously low cap rates, and they were hoping for a cheap cost of funds. And now all that's gone, right? Cost, cost of funds are through the roof. F cap rate fundamentals are going to come back. You know, these, these multifamily buildings for four and a half cap just never made sense to me. Uh, and, and so, you know, there's guys getting their hands caught in the cookie jar on the on that side. And there's going to be a lot of opportunity, I believe there, mostly in terms of, you know, guys that are just, you know, coming up against refinancing issues here. That looks to be the case. 
Um, okay. <laughs> you probably hear this one from everyone. Well, right? yeah, I mean, let's see. But I asked the question because you never know what somebody's going to say. And you you have a lengthy and, and broad perspective on this stuff because of what you do. So, so yeah. pe- different people say different things. So who are your investors? Uh, yeah. Who are your investors? I have a broad range. So when I started First Lean Capital, it was the it was my first time going out and starting my own fund uh, where to bring out outside investors. Over the years, I would syndicate friends and family deals while managing money for a large, what basically was a an institutional uh, group out of Greenwich, Connecticut, now Palm Beach. And we placed over close to a billion, 850, 900 million of their equity dollars over a 10 year period. When I started First Lean Capital, it was with my money, my partner and some friends and family. So we, we, our first fund was, you know, 50, 100, $200,000 checks. We raised about 10 million bucks. We partnered up with a New York a billion dollar institutional firm on a para pursue joint venture. And that's how we grew these first two years to about a hundred million dollars under management. Now we've, we, we've used very little leverage along the way. It's another thing, even in my business, believe it or not, there are, there are, there's been financing for the purchase of, of notes. Right. And there are guys in my business that are getting caught with their hands in the cookie jar because they took too much leverage at too cheap a dollars a year or two ago. And now, you know, it's double the money. So we've always been very heavy equity, very little leverage. I opened my second fund last year. It's open to accredited investors now. Uh, and it will continue to be open at least through the end of this year, maybe through the first part of next year. Uh, you have to be an accredited investor to join that fund. It's three years closed-end funds, uh, your typical eight hurdle and you know uh, typical fund management structure. We, we charge a point and a half management fee uh, and we get 20% of the profits after an eight hurdle. It's a close three to five year closed-end fund. So we have... Um, a mix of these mom and pop investors that came along with us in fund one that are rolling over. Now we've got family offices that are writing more like one to $5 million checks into the fund. And um, we're looking to raise between 50 and a hundred million dollars into that fund. And that will support the purchasing of 50 million of equity uh, along with my relationships on wall street with larger institutional players. Um, That'll support, uh, you know, 500 million to, to a billion of purchasing over the next two to three years. Okay. So the loan to value, help me on the math. So the loan to value is what approximately? So when I buy, when we buy, you got now, so I'm buying into a fund and we consider this a very safe, diversified investment in first lien mortgages that we are buying at a discount to the face value of the mortgage and at a safe underlying LTV to the collateral we encumber. So if I buy a mortgage that's at 100% LTV, I have to pay 60 cents for that mortgage. And in general, across the country, we, we will price our debt to always be a, a minimum of 80 cents of total debt comparative to the debt. We're not going to pay more than obviously the debt that's owed. But more importantly, we're going to want to be in a 60 to 70 of the underlying real estate collateral. So if that means, sometimes that means a greater discount and sometimes that doesn't mean as much of a discount. Sometimes I can pay a hundred percent 
of UPB on something that's sitting at a 50 LTB that's been down for a few years because I know I have that added total debt that I can, that I'm already tacking in, that I'm already buying into. And I can buy the loan at par, but it's got two years of backed interest that I'm already going to be able to collect. And then I work from there. But I'm generally buying at a where a hard money lender would want to be placing their debt position. That's where our equity is going in. And that obviously a discount to the debt. And then we get to be the nice guy bank working it out with the borrowers because we've got tools in our tool shed now. They don't know I own the debt at, at less than what they owe. They think that I'm the bank. They, they, that's, you know, and rightfully so, they still owe that money. And that's the beauty of buying in the secondary mortgage market. I'm buying debt and what the price I paid to that on that debt is irrelevant to the borrower. I look like a hero. When I go to a borrower and say, you know what, I'm going to let you pay me 95% to pay off this loan. Little does he know I paid 75 for the debt, you know, well, and that's another gorgeous thing about this. You know, unless he's listening to this podcast. Well, don't, don't, don't <laughs> get this podcast out too far. <laughs> let's erase it all. I said, I know nothing. I paid full price. <laughs> what am I doing talking about this? Listen, I, I, Bill, look, you know me well enough. This has been a short acquaintanceship, but already you know me well enough to know that that you know me well enough to know that I don't stereotype people. But but this is one exception that typically people in a in a residential non-performing loan scenario borrowers not listening to these kind of podcasts. That's yeah. me being horribly stereotypical. You know that generally yeah, you're, such, that way. you're such a racist towards non-performing <laughs> borrowers. <laughs> I, I, you know, guilty as charged on the high holidays, nonetheless. I'm, I'm going to hell. I know that's right. Oh though. my god. Um. So is is there any leverage in this fund? Uh, we haven't taken any leverage on it. We've tried to stay all equity. Um. We've there. Uh, I, I take that back. Out of the 80 million of net equity dollars currently there, because we've sold some stuff off recently, we've got a total, I'm sorry, it's more like 86. And we've got a total against that much of equity, we've got a total of about $9 million of leverage against that entire portfolio. So if we were were to take leverage, it would be a very nominal low, low, low piece. I got it. Okay. Um, and what, what are the average size of the loans and length of them? You know, I'm looking, I, I'm a, I'm a believer in that first and second time home buyer space. So we try to stay above the hundred thousand to $200,000 homes. Those, 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 uh, starter homes and low value rental properties, they cost just as much to work through as your, you know, 200 to 500s or your 500s to a millions. So ideally, our average loan size is about three fifty. Got it. And and what's that the we're way? buying? But you know, we buy jumbos and we buy we we end up having to buy small cheap stuff, uh, you know. And it's kind of part of like what you have to take. You know, you have to really be an agnostic uh, buyer when you're buying pools of mortgages, uh, and you have to get get with the idea that there's no such thing as a bad piece of real estate or a bad loan. It's just how you price it. And that's kind of the attitude we take. So you're buying pools. You're not buying mortgage at a time. You're buying pools. That's correct. I, I mean, I'll, I will buy one and one-offs, but I'm always going after pools. It's another way that I get an edge because there's another barrier to entry. How, who's going to, you know, how, who's going to be out there knowing how to buy pools in five different, you know, a pool of 50 mortgages in seven different states 
you got to have a real infrastructure and and team in place that knows how to do that and price that. That's that's a, that's another thing that makes us unique. Is that a typical size? Is fifty loans? Would would that be a typical size of a pool? Yeah, you know, pools range in size. There was there you've got Fannie Mae just sold a two hundred and thirty seven million dollar pool last week. Freddie Mac selling several hundred million dollar pools. But the at but a but a but a good chunk pool. You know, if you if you've got an average of a three hundred thousand um, dollar price tag, you know a thirty million dollar trade might be you know fifty loans or something like that or seventy loans. Yes, so you 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 see it go out in all ranges. You have to be again agnostic to the extent of what the deal might look like. If you pigeonhole yourself too much, like I only want to buy five to ten loans at a time, or I only want to buy you know, a hundred million or more, you end up cutting yourself short on what opportunities you have to choose from. So um, there have been times that I have bought one loan, like you, you know, you said, and it was from a guy that I knew that somewhere down the loan way, I would buy this loan. I'll make a little money. Maybe it's a little extra work to have to do one loan, but he came back and then he sold me five loans and then he came back and sold me 30 loans. And each time the deals got a little bit better. Um, so there are times that I'll buy small pools, um, if the opportunity is right, but we really ideally like to buy five to 15 to 20 million at a time. So that would be, you know, a 30 to 50 loan pool. Um, but you know, it ranges, you got to go with what's, what's offered. Do you, when they are, when somebody has, has aggregated a pool like this and they, and they go to upstream to a, a guy like you, that's bigger, I'm assuming maybe I'm wrong, but but it's kind of what goes on in my brain. Is it, is it a bid process? You, you, you know, you and your competitors at your size and is that how it works? Yes, 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 yes. And it's actually the other way around usually. So as loans are newly originated and they're being sold at par at their face value at the origination, that's where aggregation's coming upward. So you've got originators all around the country selling one loan, pools of loans up to aggregators um, who are either securitizing those or selling them off to banks and other pools or pension funds, et cetera. Where we're doing is we're actually, we're, we're on, the, on the non-performing side after these things have now gone into default, it's kind of coming back down the system. So you've got oh. Fannie that'll sell a big pool of a couple hundred okay. million that like that'll get bought by Goldman. Goldman will sell 50 million off to us, you know, and it kind of works it way down the out of the system. So and, and because remember, it's the guys at the top that are the ones that are taking the loss, the ones that that paid par for a loan when it was originated. Somehow it goes upstream to a pension fund or a bank. And now a, a, a load of these build up as non-performing and the bank finally says, okay, well, we have one of two choices. We either sell it and take the loss now or, you know, risk the, or, or we put it into special servicing and we still got to put the money up uh, because, you know, the feds want us to, you know, the, the loss default issues of, of banking. And that's a lot of what we're going to see. That's why I think Larry Summers last, last year came out at the end of the last year with interest rates on the rise saying he he predicted a top-down meltdown to the economy because of the fact that a lot of these hot, a lot of asset values and, you know, in the higher levels, um, you've got a lot of bank financing intertwined with all of this, not to mention what you've already seen in the banking sector, the write-down and commercial value books 
Um, I tell you, I've gotten offers of bank of portfolios from banks in the middle of August last month. These guys are usually at the Hamptons. They're not selling their books. There's something on the, they're, they're all, a lot of community banks and regional banks are in trouble. Is the process, the, the, the acquiring of the portfolio process, is it just so it, it gets put out to bid and you just put a number on it or is it, 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 yeah. that's, it's got, it, it's that, it's that simple. It's that simple. There's, there's a couple of auction houses that are public auction houses that people could actually go and, and register for. If you have a net worth, you could actually register as a bidder yourself. There's DebtX, which is uh, the debt exchange. That one's pretty tough because you need to have a certain level of clearance to get in there. But there's First Financial, Mission Capital. There are websites out there where individuals could go and bid on pools and whatnot. So there are these, those are the public auctions. Those, a lot of those national brokers also participate with Bank of America Merrill Lynch, representing Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac. Um, HUD sells stuff, um, you know, so the government agencies and the GSCs are where the larger pools come out of, and that's all open public bidding. Then there's a series of trades that will go on amongst that good old boys network. There's still brokers involved, but yes, a, a, a tape of loans gets sent out to, you know, the couple dozen of us that are out there, potential bidders. And then they say you have, you know, a September 21st bids are due by 5 p.m. And we all just blindly bid that based upon a data tape we get and whatever due diligence we can get up front. And then you're the, the highest, there's, there's a couple of ways these trades will go. In a private sale, either negotiated directly from a seller or through a broker, one of these less public sales, um, you will often get pools carved. So we're asked to bid, but we're asked to bid loan level. So I could bid 50 loans and get 25, right? Mm. And then they give the 25 better bids to the other guy. Um, there are also deals like FDIC is now talking about the signature bank trade. That's going to be pooled. So in those cases, you there's 14 pools. There could be up to 14 winners of that trade, but you can only win an entire pool. So there's different ways that the trades go down. And then there's a due diligence period of usually about 30 to 60 days post act, post award of your bid, at which point you review the collateral, you go through the documents, you figure out if the data that they supplied you at the time of bid was correct. And if it wasn't, you adjust accordingly, you negotiate, renegotiate any discrepancies between data and due diligence findings. Sometimes that means repricing things. Sometimes that means kicking loans out of the pool. And then, and then you fund the trade usually within days thereafter. Um, so the entire process of any trade of any size that is formidable is usually about 60 to 90 days to, to, from the time they go, bring it to market, let, wait for the bids, go through due diligence, close the trade and service transfer the loans. It's about a 90 day process in general. This is fascinating. I, I mean, I had, I had no idea. I mean, and you do, seriously, you do, you do a great job of simplifying, you know, cause I'm sure it's way more involved than that. I, you know, I, I, I I'm, I'm I, trying to create more competition for myself. <laughs> here, <Robert. laughs> you know, I, I'm, I might be your first one. Now, don't worry, Bill. I'm, I'm way too lazy and I'm not that smart. So, so I, I I'm, I'm no threat to you. 
Um, what's the nature of your, your JV partner? Is it a PE firm? Is it a large? And you may have already said it and I just didn't catch it, but I, so I asked the question. Yes, yes, yes. A large uh, $6 billion institutional player. They've been around for decades. They don't, they happen to be real estate and they actually, we really say the largest part of their investment, but they've owned, they've owned sports teams in Europe. They've owned buildings. They've owned uh, businesses, industrial businesses oil fields, you know, it's a diverse uh, private equity firm. And they're, they're, they are my first big partner as of under a first lien entity. And we also have a backup joint venture. So there's a lot of guys, a lot of groups on Wall Street, spinoffs of Goldman, uh, spinoffs of other investment banks, investment banks themselves that are all, that all look to dip their toes in this water. But our main joint venture partner is this $6 billion firm. They pursued us as a leverage first, ironically. And, uh, uh, and we turned them down for a year. We said, well, no, we only want you as equity. And then they came around and now we're Power Pursue Equity to partners. We've done, we're going to do another probably 40 million bucks of buying this quarter, the coming. And, you know, we managed the deal and they trust us. And it, it's been a great, great experience. It's like we're growing up a little bit. You know, we were the young new management company. Yes, yeah, so everyone in my team has more than a decade experience in the business, but we were a young organization on our own uh, two years ago when we hooked up with these guys. And uh, it's been great. It's been, it's been great to, you know, to test our abilities uh, with some real institutional partners. Uh, but what I really, you know, the whole goal is to make money. I wanted, one of my real goals in First Lean was also to bring this strategy back to my friends and family, back to the masses. There's not a lot of opportunity to get involved as a being the bank other than, you know, maybe buying a couple notes on yourself. And, and, and this, this is a unique, like, uh, cross juncture between Main Street and Wall Street that we sit at, at First Lean Capital. So I had friends and family who had watched me do buying notes and doing this business for 10, 15 years that wanted to get involved. So the original concept of First Lean was to actually bring this investment class back to the masses. That's what the fund does. So that if anyone who wanted to get involved wanted to write a 200000 or a $500,000 check and say, hey, I'm involved buying the distressed assets. Um, well, certainly now's the time to, to be thinking about that strategy moving forward. In terms of that level, so it's like a dumb, the, the, the cliche I keep hearing, I even heard it at like, yesterday afternoon is democratization, but it kind of sounds that for lack of a better cliche, that's what you're doing is it's a democratization of this kind of investing. Yeah. Yeah. The smart thing would be to, to turn it into a reggae, but I've been too lazy myself to go through that rigmarole with the SEC. <laughs> okay. You're, you're forgiven. Um, and what, so what, what, and what's a minimum and what is, you know, for an investor, like, do they get a pref, you know, plus, uh, as the split yep. of the profit and what is, what's the, what is yeah, a minimum? Yeah. 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 The, the, and paper, the minimum's 500,000, but we're allowed to let anyone in that at any level as the manager. So I can sell half shares. So I've allowed my, I have uh, my, if my doctor and my account, I mean, not my doctor, my lawyer and my accountant are listening. I'm sorry to embarrass you, but you only invested 50,000 in me last year. <laughs> 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 so I'll let my accountant in at 50 and my lawyer and a couple family members I've let in at 50 or a hundred. 
but most of the folks that are writing, you're writing two hundred to to three hundred thousand dollar checks. I've got a lot at the million dollar level now. That's the guy. That's what. That's where folks are coming in. Like the second fund, you know, they wrote two hundred to begin with, or a hundred to begin with, and now they're coming in for five hundred or a million. Now that they're comfortable, just to give you an idea. Uh, and then in, to answer your question about how the fund works, it's a three to five year close end fund, accredited investors only. The uh, the the we are targeting a uh, high to mid teens unlevered return to the fund. Uh, just to give you an idea where fund one sits, uh, we're coming up on two in two, just over two and a half years. Uh, we are starting to, we've been harvesting and paying back fund one investors. Uh, a third of the fund one will be paid back by the end of this year. So just inside of three years. And we're expecting that to to be somewhere between a one four and a one five multiple in three years. So, you know, it's, it's hitting those mid teens on levered returns. And I think that we'll do much better in the future. I think we're going to be in the 20s, but don't quote me on it. I just keep saying mid-teens just to keep people. I think people they're, are they're, happy with they're that. They're stupid right? if they're not, well, <laughs> especially with this this low, uh, fairly low level of risk. Um, does sure. it work? Is there cash flow or how, you know, how does it, you know, how, do, how does that money get, you know, how much is, is the upside versus yeah, all that? The, yeah, correct, correct. We don't guarantee, we have, obviously there are pools that we buy that immediately cash flow. We bought a, a series of, of performing loans last year at 70 cents on the dollar that were cash flowing immediately. But we don't, we don't promise cash flow day one. So we, we, what the way it works is that uh, we will invest for the first year and a half of the fund. And then as soon as we start to harvest assets, that's when we start to, to, we catch up the pref. The pref is eight. There's no catch up to us after that. And then we just get 20 or 20% above for every percentage above an eight per year. So we have now caught up all, all pref money in fund one after two and a half years. So investors have basically gotten, you know, whatever, 18% back plus a little bit of principal. And now we're paying back principal plus. So the problem, the, it's in writing, we can do what we want. There's no promise of cash flow. But what we've done and what, the way we've structured this and the way we think fund one will work, fund two will work, is similar to fund one is by, by year, end of year one, we start to catch up prep. So we, going into year, the first year of the fund, you're, you're, you invest, you don't, you're just getting reports. By year two, you're starting to get cash flow. And then you, you get cash flow through to the end, whether it's three, four, or five years uh, till all, all principal plus profits are paid out of it. And could you say that it's an 80 20 split? Yeah, I know. It's 80 20 to 15. And then, and then we'll take 30 above the 15. I know we don't, we totally are cutting ourselves short. It's a very labor intensive business. I'm passing a lot back through to the investor, but it's okay. It's my money too. I'm, I invest co right alongside with all of the okay. investors as an LP as well. What is involved in asset management of the NPL side? Like, and, and what does that take? Like, what is that? How big is your team to have to deal with all that Michigas? Which did it, it look? Yeah. I know, right? Um, so this is, you know, the second, I, I talked a lot about how we sit in the secondary market and we're kind of in a unique space of it because the bigger players, Goldman doesn't get out of bed for a hundred million. And the fact that we're agnostic and we're willing to buy one loan or 50 loans, whatever, we're seeing a lot of product and we get to bid everything. The second thing that really makes us unique is the 
asset management piece, the service, what we call servicer surveillance. Um, you know, a lot of guys in my business manage forests. We manage the trees. Uh, we are very hands-on. Um, so in addition to the fact that we've hired licensed servicers, specialty servicers who have asset managers, loss mitigators that are smiling and dialing and doing all that, we have a layer on our side of asset management, a team of about five to 10 people, um, when you're, depending on who you're including with the support staff, um, that sit in the, well, in the servicer surveillance outfit. And what we do is we grease the wheels. We look over the shoulders of the servicers because the servicers don't have a vested interest. You've got one asset manager and a servicer with a thousand loans. I've got three asset managers at my company looking at 400 loans. So we're very hands-on looking over the shoulder of the servicer, talking directly to our attorneys, talking to our brokers. We have broker boots on the ground that we get a lot of free work from. And it's because we've built this network over 15 years of having brokers on the ground. Um, and when I say brokers, it's not just real estate brokers, mortgage brokers, general contractors. We're out door knocking, talking directly to borrowers, looking for solutions to work these properties out. And what the end result is, and this is why our returns are as good as they are, is the end result is a quicker execution of the resolution. So the entire model for buying these loans at 60 or 70 cents on the dollar are predicated upon whatever the foreclosure timelines are in the city, state, or zip code that you're going to. Now, if I can go into this timeline where I get, okay, I bought this loan for 60 cents on the dollar, because it's a two-year timeline to foreclose. And now I, my asset management team can speed that up, which we've done. We have the stats to prove it, that we'll speed that time up. That's where we arbitrage that extra alpha, that extra, that extra return for us and our investors is by taking a two-year foreclosure timeline, shortening it to a year because we've offered the borrower a Dean Lou, or we've done a short sale, or we've, you know, or we've done something else to grease the wheels. And that's how, that's the really the special piece. That's the managing trees instead of forests that we do. Oh, man. Uh, does anybody do it the way you do it? There's a couple of guys in our business that are good, but not as good as us. It's interesting what we've, one of the ways that we segued from, from our old company into First Lean was we had competitors of ours that couldn't sell us loans at a discount anymore. They ended up hiring us to work certain markets. Like we're really good. Like the hardest to work market in the NPL business is New York, known to be so because of the law, the gregarious laws, the favorable, you know, tenant borrower, favorable judges and, and, you know, and everything else that is New York. I love New York. It's my favorite city, but it's also got its issues in the legal side, you know, um, and, uh, and, and so, you know, we had one of my big, some of those big competitors I mentioned that are like the Goldman size competitors have actually hired us to manage portions of their portfolio in the harder to work areas. So, um, we've, uh, we've, we've, we've definitely, that's the thing. I, I think there are definitely others that will, that are high touch, the specialty servicers that work for us, they'll say that they can do what we do. Um, but you know, I think we're the best in the business. Of course, I'm going to say that who, who wouldn't. <laughs> well, no, but I, 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 but you, you, it sounds like you really do. You really have a distinct approach to what you do. 
uh, you're willing to do kind of the, you're willing to take on the brain damage is what I'm hearing. Right. And, you, and you figure out a, a smart way of kind of systematizing it and dealing with, and that's where a lot of times the the big money is when you're willing to do stuff other people can't or are unwilling to do. Um, yeah. You've taught me uh, a lot. What are, what are transitions like when you take over, you know, like an NPL and, you know, dealing with the, the borrower and now you're the, oh, yeah. like the new sheriff? Like, what does all that look Such like? Great question. So, you know, there every most of us that have owned real estate know what it's like to, to see a loan get sold. You know, you get a letter from your servicer saying your loan is being service transferred from Land Home to Wells Fargo or Wells Fargo to Aquin. Or, you know, you get that letter, what they call hello letters from the new servicer, goodbye letters from the old servicer. That's when a loan sale has happened, right? And and so we buy a pot pool, our ser- the, the seller sends their goodbye letter, our servicer sends the hello letter. Already at that point, based upon the public information that's in play, our brokers are getting out there talking to borrowers. And what's beautiful about our whole thing, and it's laid out in my book, Win-Win Revolution, which you can get on Amazon, by the way, and it's it really tells the story of our business. We don't go out and start talking debt collection. I didn't want to get into this business to start debt collecting debt. I, I'm, a, I'm a real estate guy. But what we, so what happens is the brokers get out there and they say, listen, you know, this loan that you just got the goodbye letter from Wells Fargo. Well, I've got a copy of your hello letter proving that I work with this new servicer. I'm going to tell you this investor is not Bank of America. They're not Wells Fargo. You should really talk to them. They're going to they're going to work with you. So we are already starting to grease the wheels with borrowers. And we get to come in because we're coming in at a lower basis. They, again, they don't know this. But because of that, I have tools in my tool shed that I can use to give back to them, to incentivize a quicker resolution. And that's why I call it win-win revolution, because I can actually take the cost of foreclosing, pass some of that cost back to the borrower and allow them to exit with dignity. And, and, and that's the beauty of what we do, you know, is that we're, we're not there to foreclose on people. We do. We foreclose on 25% of the pools we buy. And but those are usually people that are trying to get a free house or, you know, not willing to deal or there's something else, you know, illegally with title that we had to deal with. But, you know, what we'd love to do is keep everyone in their homes. So the first 20, 30 percent we reperform. If we can keep someone in their home, that's a great exit for us because I can buy something at 70 cents on the dollar, take in six months of payments, re-season the loan. Now it's gone from non-performing to performing and sell it for 90, 95 cents to home run for me. And I've kept someone in their home. Then you've got a middle portion where I'm talking about that tools in the tool shed. Let me find out a workout. Let me do a deed and loo. Let me do a short sale. Let me pay for you to get set up in a rental property so that you can exit with some dignity. Uh, And that's, you know, so I think on top of the fact that we're in a very unique place in the business, on top of the fact that we um, have a high barrier to entry and that we're making a really nice, safe return for our investors. There's, I actually see it like an ESG element. We're not a vulture fund. We're actually out there trying to help people get out of these nasty situations, whatever led them to their default. And we're going to make money doing so. We know we're going to, we have the stick. We own the first lien on their, on their property. We could foreclose on them. Let's find a way to help them exit and make it all a win-win. So 
you know, that goes with my whole, like, trying to make the world a better place. I, it I, be- I believe Part. it. Kind of. I kind of believe it. <laughs> no, I believe it. Hey, who bu- who buys the notes from you? A lot of, so there's a great, like I said, the after the GFC, there's this whole world of investors that have popped up now. And so mo- a lot of folks have gotten smart about buying individual notes, either performing or doing the non-performing, learning what we've done and trying to emulate them themselves. There's groups out there that, you know, Node Expo, Paper Stack, there's there's, there's, there's organizations of people that are using their 401k self-directed money to buy notes. Um, and then we also will aggregate performing loans. Now we'll go the other way. And the ones that we reperform, the paper we reperform, if I get a pool of five or 10 million of that now reperforming together, instead of going downstream individually, I can aggregate that back up. It's almost as if I've re-originated a new pool like I was talking about earlier, now I'll aggregate that back up and sell it to one of my larger competitors. Roughly speaking, you don't have to answer and I don't even know why I asked, but just out of curiosity, what's the headcount of your total organization? And that's up for you if you feel comfortable. If not, that's fine too. No, no, no. Yeah, no, I'm not. You know, it's, it, we have to balance a not being too top heavy with just the right amount of hands-on. So right now I got a dozen people it's not a big organization, and and but this is bigger than I would normally like to be managing only a hundred million, but it's in preparation for going from one hundred to three hundred in the next year. Um, so about a dozen people. I've got five on the asset management team. I've got uh, you know five on the operations and bookkeeping side. It is it is intensive from a data point of view and from a keeping track of things point of view. Um, but it's not, but I don't, one of the things I have to be cognizant as we grow this thing is to not get too top heavy. I've watched competitors of mine get, you know, dollar signs in their eyeballs and all of a sudden they're, you know, they got a bunch of executives with, you know, half million dollar salaries or million dollar salaries and they're flying around in private jets. That's not going to be us. We want to keep it a family operation. We, you know, we can, we think with this size, we can triple, quadruple our book and still manage the portfolio effectively. How many are, how many loans are in the book currently? 735 to, as of today or something like that. I see. And do you get, do you guys, is it virtual or do you guys, do you have everybody uh, come into an office? No, no, we're still virtual. We're still virtual. I got an office in Queens that has five people that show up. I've got two people in Chicago, my controllers in Atlanta, my collateral manager in South Carolina. I got a, a small office in South Florida. Um, with two or three people that never go. So, you know, I've actually, even before COVID, because we were on a national footprint buying these loans, we always kind of were virtual even before COVID existed. We've been Skype users forever. (laughs) Then Zoom came along and it's like, you know, now it all became normal for everyone else. We do plan if we do grow any more then we might then we might have to to actually open a real office but for now we're we're doing great with the uh, my staff loves you know we're, you can hear it in my voice I'm pretty passionate about this stuff uh, and hopefully I've surrounded myself by people that are the same Bill you are my hero you are just <laughs> my hero you are a smart you are a hustler man and coming from me that's a that's a compliment so thank you you you, you are welcome. What are key lessons you've learned along the way? 
Um, one of the things is, uh, that I've learned is, is you've got to take a chance and you gotta, you gotta stick your foot in the water. You know, the best education you're going to get is doing deals. And I've watched people at conferences or listening to podcasts or I'm a podcast creator myself and I'm a student of the industry. So I always am wanting to learn and I'm a big believer in it, but you got, you got to stick your toe in and, and money sitting on the sideline that you've got sitting in your account for, even if you're getting 5% in your money market, you know, if you, if you're passing up a 12 or a 15% return right now, because you think you're going to get a 23 in six months, well, the six months you were sitting there, you would have, you know, put your money to work. So I'm, one of the things that I've learned is, is that at some point you really gotta, you really gotta put your foot down. A lot of people spend a lot of time uh, and, you know, really, you know, jump in and get in and learn the business, whatever field you choose, whatever avenue you just, you know, take a chance. My mother, who, by the way, was a relatively conservative person. I don't seem from a political point of view, but like in terms of just like not wanting to take chances in her own life. She used to say every day to me when we get out of the car, take a chance, honey. But it wasn't like, you know, go kill yourself and put, throw yourself in front of a car. But like, you know, put yourself out there. Just go a little beyond your comfort zone. If you've got a feeling this deal is working, you've done the research, jump in. Don't hold out for the super home run. Get to work and, you know, and you're not going to make, and you know what? You're not going to make a, you know, you're not going to make, uh, you know, huge profits on every deal. The whole, the whole point is big wins, small losses, you know, and, and, and a better than, you know, it, listen to you, you know, people make the hall of fame batting 300 in this business. You know, if you do better on the majority of your deals, you're going to end up ahead. And, and so that's really kind of the lesson that I've learned. Wow. Uh, cannot thank you enough. And, uh, I hope to, uh, circle back and, and do it again, maybe next year. God bless, sure. man. This has been just so much fun. I, I really, really appreciate it. Great to get to know you, Roger. I really appreciate the time and I love your show. Yeah. So let's do it again sometime too. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. <laughs>